Tonight, we're going to be looking at Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. But before we jump into that passage, uh, you know, every so often you encounter a book uh, that truly impacts you in a pretty profound way. After you finish the book, it's filled with highlights and sections that are underlined, pages that have been dog-eared, and notes in the margin. And, and it has a, a special place in your, your library at home because you know it's going to be a resource that you go back and refer to or reread time and time again. You know, I, I just finished reading a book like that with a, a group of pastors here on staff. It's called A Dangerous Calling, Confronting the Unique Challenges of Pastoral Ministry. It was written by a pastor and a gifted counselor named Paul David Tripp. And he wrote this book almost a decade ago because he felt burdened by the amount of pastors and church leaders that he was seeing being disqualified from ministry because of some sort of moral failure in their life. And you know, reading this book at times often felt like undergoing a spiritual surgery. I mean, with, with insight and precision, Tripp knows how to use a spiritual scalpel to open up and cut through the fluff and the pretense and get right to the root of the problem. And at time that's unpleasant, uh, but you know, in the end, it's worth it. You know that spiritual surgery is exposing hidden sin, it's excising dangerous motives and it's restoring an accurate view of Jesus and the gospel and our calling as Christ followers. And that book reminded me of how easy it can be for Christ followers to deviate into dangerous spiritual territory if they aren't constantly on guard and intentionally pursuing Jesus. In fact, I have the book right here and the most obvious reminder on the book is the dust jacket. Um, on the back of the dust jacket, Paul David Tripp had five different pastors and church leaders write a, um, write a commendation, write an endorsement for the book. And here we are eight years later, and only two of those guys are still in ministry. The other three have left the ministry because they were denying the gospel either through their words or through their actions. Uh, one pastor in particular on the back of that book, uh, he was the pastor of a church of 5,000 on a weekend. He had written a best-selling book that sold over a million copies, and he had been a prominent voice in evangelical circles. And last year, he had a very public renunciation of his faith. Shortly after, he announced that he was divorcing his wife, not long after that, he apologized for preaching a Christian biblical ethic on morality, and he began championing a lifestyle that his worldview up until that point uh, had conflicted with. And you know, that's not just, that reality is not just consigned to pastors and, and church leaders. I imagine that all of us have probably had some experience with that. Maybe it was a friend who you knew quite well, and you grew up going to church with them, and then at some point in college, maybe it was a, a class that they took that kind of challenged your faith or whatever it was, but by the end of college, they were no longer identifying as a Christ follower. Maybe it was a couple that came here to Highland, and they seemed really engaged and plugged in, and you knew them well, but here you are five years later, and they don't really attend church anywhere, and they really don't live a life that's honoring to the Lord. Maybe you have a family member who 
grew up in a, a Christ-centered home and they would have called themselves a Christian, but recently they came out and said that they were agnostic and they really don't know what they believe anymore. You know, personally, I think of one of the first high schoolers that I ever had as a youth pastor. I was working at a church down in Texas and this particular high school where his mom was on staff at the church that I was working at, and he was very plugged into our youth group. I mean, he went on a mission trip to Spain. His life centered around our small group in the summer. And he graduated and went off to college, and it was just one year later, and I flew in because I was speaking at a camp, and we went out to lunch, and I was sitting across from him at Whataburger listening to him tell me that Christianity just didn't seem like a rational option to him any longer, and he was now identifying as an atheist. You know, that's a pretty sobering topic to start out on, and I know that. Um, and I think that a lot of us have, have asked this question before, how does this happen? How does a person end up spiritually shipwrecked? And most ominously, how can I make sure that doesn't happen to me? I know it's a sobering topic, but honestly, it's dictated to be by the text we're going to look at tonight. You know, as a preacher of God's word, as we continue to go through books of the Bible, I really don't get to set the tone of a text. I have to follow the tone and tenor of how Paul originally wrote this letter. And this was one of those sections where Paul recognizes that, that the world is filled with pernicious influences that seek to draw us away from the truth of scripture, from the beauty of the gospel and the lordship of Christ. And not much has changed 2,000 years later. We live in a world that still seeks to derail our spiritual lives. We live in a world that celebrates when Christians walk away from their faith and embrace a uh, lifestyle of secularism. And we need to realize that we are going to have our faith come under attack and we have to be ready to respond to that. We need to have a fortified faith that can withstand the assault that we will be undergoing in our lives every day. And Paul in this passage really shows us how we can properly fortify our faith. So with that background in mind, why don't you open up your Bibles to Colossians 2 verses 6 and 7. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of helpful context. You know, the first word in verse 6 tonight is therefore. And whenever you see a therefore in scripture, that means that uh, an application point is coming from the preceding verses. So Paul is making an application point based on verses 1 through 5 of this chapter. So to rightly understand verses 6 and 7, we need to understand what he's getting after in verses 1 through 5. And in this section, he really gets to the heart of the letter to the church of Colossae. Uh, there were many false teachers who were infiltrating their community and spreading all sorts of dangerous heresy. They were pointing people away from Jesus and away from the true gospel. And they were sending the Colossian church down the path of spiritual shipwreck. And in verse 4, Paul says, listen guys, I, I don't want you to be deluded with plausible arguments. He's saying there, I don't want you to be deceived by seemingly persuasive teachers. Because there were teachers that they seemed intellectual. They would, were gifted uh, rhetorical speakers. They were charismatic personalities. And he's saying, don't, don't be led astray by the personality when their teaching and their doctrine is far from, from Christ. 
Because many of these teachers were relying on the authority of their own opinions rather than the authority of God's inspired and errant word of Scripture. And Paul is saying, I can't let these false teachers deconstruct the firm foundation that Epaphras had so diligently worked to construct in the Colossian church. So Paul was not about ready to stand by and watch that happen. So in verses 6 and 7, Paul tells the believers, hey, wake up, fortify your faith, and guard your hearts against these dangerous influences. So let's read these verses together. Here's what he says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You know, as we look at these verses, I think the topic is spiritual maturity. Paul is describing how we can attain spiritual maturity. And then he's also saying spiritual maturity is the best safeguard against spiritual shipwreck. So if we were to boil down what Paul's getting at to one big idea for the night, I think this is it. He's saying to grow up, grow deep. To grow up in your spiritual life into spiritual maturity, you need to grow deeper in your faith. And tonight we're going to look at three principles from this text that help us learn how we can grow deeper, how we can fortify our faith against the lies and the attacks and the ungodly influences of our culture. And you know, looking, let's look back at the beginning of verse 6 for our first principle. I'm going to paraphrase that section so you really see what Paul's trying to uh, highlight. Here, here's kind of what he says. Therefore, as you receive Jesus as your Christ, as your Savior, and your Lord. Paul's reminding them of exactly who Jesus is and how that should impact and transform their lives here and now. And to go deeper in our faith, we have to be devoted to Jesus as both our Savior and our Lord. Those are both key components. And we really like the first part of that, Jesus as Savior, but sometimes we struggle with the second part, Jesus as Lord. So I think here's the first principle that we can learn to fortify our faith. Point number one, we need to surrender everything. We need to surrender everything. Paul says, remember how you received Jesus. When you received him as your savior, you also received him as your king. And he says, you need to be constantly making sure that you are taking the totality of your life and placing it under the lordship and authority of Jesus. When we become Christians, when they became Christians, Paul's saying, you, you recognized that meant stepping down from sitting in the throne of your life. You're no longer king of your life. Jesus gets to sit on the throne of your heart. He gets to call the shots. He gets to be the ultimate authority. I think Paul captures this idea extremely well in Galatians 2.20 when he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. And because of that, it's no longer, who I, no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. When we become a new creation in self, we die to ourselves. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when we accept Jesus into our life, we're accepting a radical new lifestyle of humble submission and obedience to Jesus as our king. 
One pastor put it this way, uh, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. There's no neutral ground. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Think about this way. Imagine their lives are like a floundering retail business. Due to our terrible management decisions, the business is hemorrhaging money left and right. We are in exorbitant amounts of debt and foreclosure is a certain guarantee. And we were the owners, we were the operators, and it is all our fault and we are totally powerless to change the situation. We made major mistakes and now we have to pay the price. But imagine something miraculous happens. There's a generous benefactor who hears about our situation and he decides that he is going to come and bail us out. He is going to float the bill. He's going to pay off the debts. He's going to prevent us from going into bankruptcy. He's going to pay to fix all of the mismanagement that we've been doing for years. And he is going to prop up and fix and redeem the business. Okay. But, but with that, the business owner also says that we have to change our habits and we have to now submit to his direction and his insight and his plans. The business owner now says he's got a new and wise business plan that we have to submit to. We have to recognize that part of this arrangement is we no longer have the authority to keep calling the shots. Our generous benefactor expects us to follow his directions and implement his business plan. And you know, at first... That might be really hard, especially if we're used to being in charge. Uh, it's uncomfortable to make costly changes. It's hard to reorient our mindset. And it's not fun in the moment to cut out the waste that's been holding us back. But the reality is the business owner can't allow us to go back to the very habits that ruined the business in the first place. He's not just there to bail us out and let us trash the company all over again. He wants to help us fix the company and do it the right way this time around. He's not a tyrant or a dictator. He isn't cruel or ruthless. He's loving and generous. He bailed out our business out of grace, and now he wants to show us the potential of what our business can become. He wants to guide us from failure to success, from poverty to abundance, from brokenness to greatness. You know, in the story, our, our lives are really represented by the business. We have not managed our lives well on our own. <laughs> we chose sin. We chose brokenness. We chose a life of autonomy and rebellion. And because of that, we have spiritually bankrupted our lives. And that's where we're headed. And we cannot fix things on our own. But Jesus loved us enough to intervene. He loved us so much that he came to earth and, and died on the cross and suffered. And he took our sins on the cross so that he could pay our debt. He could pay off the debt that we owed so we could be set free from that. However, scripture is really clear. Jesus didn't just die to bail us out of sin and then let us run right back to the sinful lifestyle that, that put him on the cross in the first place. He loves us far too much for that. When Jesus pays off our spiritual debt, he becomes the Lord of our lives. When we accept him as our Savior, Jesus also sets up a sign in our heart that says, under new management. And he gets to be the new manager of our life. And it's not because Jesus is legalistic. It's not because Jesus is restrictive. It's not because Jesus is a joy kill. It's none of those things. It's because he wants to lead us 
to experience a truly joyful, satisfying, and prosperous life. So here's the thing. When we receive Jesus into our lives, he only comes if we're willing to put up the under new management sign in our hearts. He only comes if we allow him not just to be our savior, but also our Lord. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And you know, I think there's a lot of people who falter in their faith because there's an area of their life that they've refused to bring under the lordship of Christ. They want the Burger King style Christianity where they can have it their way, right? Like I've got all these terms and conditions of I want Jesus, but Jesus, if you want me on your team, you know, here's my terms and conditions and you better meet those or, or I'm not going to join your, your team. So we really need to answer the question tonight. You know, if someone was to look at my life right now, who would they say the king of my life is? Would they say that Jesus is sitting on the throne? Or would they say honestly that Andrew's sitting on the throne? What's the areas of our life that we need to surrender? Is there something in our lives that we've never surrendered to the lordship of Christ? Or for many of us, is there something that we need to re-surrender? Because there was a time where we surrendered it, but over time, what do we start to do? We start to reach back out and want to grab hold of those things and start to bring them back in. Maybe tonight Jesus is saying, you need to surrender your calendar. (laughs) You think, you know, I'm just so busy. I don't really have time for worship services. I don't have time for quiet time. I don't have time to serve the church. I'm just so busy. And Jesus is saying, you know, I get to be Lord of your calendar. Give me access to your Google calendar. It's under my Lordship. It's under my domain. Maybe it's our finances. We need to recognize that we're not the account holders of our finances. We are stewards. Every check we write has Jesus as the authorizing personality. We are stewards of his checkbook. Are we generous? Are we quick to help other people? Are we thinking of others and how we can support his kingdom? Or is it all about me? Maybe it's our dreams, our aspirations, and our plans. We hold a little tightly to our 10-year goals. I love strategic planning. I'm in that category. But sometimes we can try to plan Jesus right out of a job. Maybe we need to surrender our plans to Jesus. Maybe it's our ability to put a veto on a moral command of Scripture we don't like. I don't like it, therefore, I don't think that's what Scripture really says. And I get to veto that and say, yeah, this part of Scripture doesn't really count for me. I get to do the old Thomas Jefferson and rip pages out of the Bible I don't like and say, here's my Bible. The book of Colossians is all about elevating our view of Jesus. And in light of who he is and all he's done, he deserves nothing less than total surrender of our lives. But the best part is Jesus is worth it. And that's what we see in Scripture. That's what we see in this passage time and time again. When we surrender our lives, that's when we find true life. Because Jesus is the only king worth following. He's the only king worth following. And you know, as we talk about surrendering everything to Jesus, we need to realize that's not a once and done thing. That's not a one-time event. That is a lifelong battle and a lifelong struggle. It's something that we have to come back to time and time again, which really brings us to our second point If we're going to fortify our faith, if we're going to grow deep, we have to keep choosing Jesus. We have to keep choosing Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 6. Paul says, just as you receive Jesus as both your Savior and your Lord, you need to keep walking in him. You need to keep savoring your time with Jesus and submitting to him as your king. 
Paul directs them to walk in Jesus. That's a present active verb that has this idea of an ongoing repeated action in your life. It's not walk in Jesus. Really, a better translation would be continue to walk in Jesus every single day. Paul's warning the Colossian believers, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. When I was growing up, uh, occasionally my grandpa, Grandpa Ed, would try to give us some sports advice. And all of, <laughs> all of his sports advice could be boiled down to one thing. Keep your eye on the ball. That's the only advice he ever gave. No matter what it was, keep your eye on the ball, right? And whenever you did something wrong, he'd, he'd nudge and say, you know what you did wrong? Yeah, 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 Grandpa, I took my eye off the ball, right? That's a little bit what Paul's doing here, though. He's saying, keep your eye on Jesus. That's the central focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, because the moment you start to take your focus off of Christ, you're going to find yourself in some dangerous spiritual territory. It's like when your eye is off of Jesus, it's like having a nutritional deficiency in your body. You know, as long as there's a nutritional deficiency, it kind of wreaks havoc on your physical health, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got an iron deficiency, what happens? All my medical people out there, you turn anemic, right? If you have a calcium, calcium deficiency, you get brittle bones and heart arrhythmia. If you've got a vitamin A deficiency, it can lead to blindness or, or damage to your vision in the long run. If any of those deficiencies go undressed, they can lead to major long-term physical repercussions. Well, the same is true if we've got some spiritual deficiencies in our life, it can lead to some major long-term spiritual damage. And the Colossian believers had a spiritual deficiency, it was a truth deficiency. A truth deficiency emerges when uh, a truth of Scripture begins to be distorted and twisted. And it's no longer about the authentic Jesus. It's no longer about the authentic gospel. But now there's some type of subtle counterfeit that's taken place. And this letter points out many counterfeits that had worked their way into the church of Colossae. They had fallen into legalism. They'd fallen into worshiping angels. They had fallen into this part where if you're not having these uh, spectacular visions and dreams of spiritual realities, then you were a subpar Christian. They had fallen into all sorts of deceptions that took their eyes off of Jesus and onto all of these secondary elementary things. And Paul is saying, don't be deceived by these teachers who are peddling a cheap distortion of the gospel. You have to hold fast to the truth. You have to cling to Jesus. And we need to hear that reminder as well. Because truth continues to be under assault in the world that we live in. There's as much heresy being peddled today as there has ever been in church history. And ultimately, a lot of that heresy is pointing people away from Jesus and into a place of spiritual shipwreck. And it's very, it's very common. In 2017, Barna Research Group, which does a lot of Christian surveys, uh, they found that only 17% of Christians who consider their faith important actually have a biblical worldview. That means four out of five that would say, my faith's really important to me, ha have taken their eye off of Jesus in an essential area of their spiritual lives. And there's a lot of that circulating around that we need to be on guard against. There's spiritual heresies like someone who undermines the atoning work of Christ. Jesus died for our sins. He died to satisfy God's just anger for the sins of the world. That's a key part of scripture. 
But there's a lot of people in the church that say, well, I don't really like the sound of that. That sounds like cosmic child abuse to me. I don't think Jesus had to die because of our sins. Like Jesus just died to show us his love for us. That, that appeasing God's wrath, God's not angry, God's loving, that, that, that's all lies. That, that, I don't like that. There's religious heresies like religious pluralism that say, you know what? All religions are essentially the same. They all lead to the same God. In the end, Jesus is one path among many to get there. We don't really have to say that Jesus is, is the only way. When Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. There's a pretty large church that attracts tens of thousands of people every Sunday in America that teaches that when Jesus came, he emptied himself fully of his divinity and everything that he did was through simply the power of the spirit and since the spirit is inside of us we can do everything that Jesus did including the same miracles and resurrections and we are literally sons of God in the sense of we are little gods and we should expect to do the things that Jesus did there's a lot of denial of Jesus morality going on right now the idea is, you know what, Jesus is all about love and Jesus' greatest desire is for me to be happy. So ultimately, I think Jesus gives me a stamp of approval to do whatever I want because that's, that's what brings me happiness and satisfaction. My feelings are the final authority of what Jesus would or wouldn't let me do in a situation. You know, there's, there's an epidemic of, of bad theology in our churches and these spiritual deficiencies can prove to be spiritually fatal if we don't correct them. Because ultimately, they lead us away from the gospel. They lead us away from the beauty of Jesus. They lead us away from sanctification. They lead us away from humility. So we have to keep choosing Jesus. We have to guard our hearts closely and protect our biblical worldview against gospel distortions that robbed Jesus of his glory and his beauty. So how can we do that? How can we overcome a truth deficiency? Well, if you have a nutritional deficiency, what does the doctor tell you? You got to take your vitamins, right? Well, if you've got a spiritual deficiency, Paul says the remedy to that in this passage, you need to go on a walk with Jesus. He says, walk in Jesus. Continue to walk in him. Go on a walk daily. Now, I know that sounds a little weird, but what that means is every single day, we need to be spending time in intentional communion with Jesus. Talking to Jesus, listening to Jesus from his word, and learning more about Jesus every single day. The best way to spot a heresy, a counterfeit, is to spend a lot of time with the real thing. Think about it this way. At Highland, we get all sorts of uh, fake emails that supposedly are from Jeff Hines. We get them all the time. It's like someone that's trying to do a scam and rip you off. And, and we get all these emails from quote unquote Jeff Hines that pop up in our inbox. And most of the time, when I get one of those emails, it takes me all of two seconds to realize it's not from Jeff. One of the reasons is Jeff is He's got a very distinct style when he emails. His subject line is always Jeff Hines, and he always signs them very, very different ways, and he has a very specific grammar when you read through it. So a lot of these times I read these emails, and by one glance I can say, oh, that's not Jeff. But one of the reasons I can do that is because I've spent a lot of the time with the real Jeff Hines. I know what to look for. One of the ways we spot a spiritual forgery is by being so familiar with the real thing. 
So how do we go on a walk with Jesus? Well, the biggest one is this. We just have to be spending time in his word. We have to be praying for God to speak to us, and then we have to be spending time saturated in his word and just getting to know the heart of Christ. I'd recommend starting with reading a gospel and just taking your time and soaking it up. I'd also recommend getting a good study Bible if you don't have one. That's so essential. That way you can learn and dig deeper. I also recommend as you read through scripture every day, just ask three simple questions. Was this teach me about myself? Was this passage teach me about who Jesus is? And was this passage teach me that needs to change in my life so I can look more like Jesus? Just a few questions that help us to apply scripture to our hearts. And once we, you know, get better at spending that time with Jesus and we get better at walking, then, you know, you might be ready for a spiritual jog or a spiritual run. And to do that, maybe that's reading a theology book or doing an inductive Bible study with a spiritual mentor, or attending a men's or women's Bible study, or listening to a great sermon on a podcast and replacing one of your other podcasts with that, or, or watching some online Bible classes uh, that are offered through Right Now Media or other sources. As we walk with Jesus, it's a lifelong process. The longer we walk, the more we need to also guard our hearts against complacency. Because here's the thing, after we're walking with Christ for a while, after we're growing, after we're uh, getting more mature in our faith, we can start to grow complacent and think that we've arrived. We start to think, yeah, book of John, I've read that a few times, there's nothing new. <laughs> I, I've exhausted the mysteries of Christ as if. But sometimes we think that way, don't we? And we have to guard against complacency in our spiritual lives. And at the end of this passage, Paul gives us four uh, participial phrases that modify what it means to continue walking. He gives us four ideas for how we can combat complacency in our spiritual lives. And that's our, our third point. We need to combat complacency if we're going to grow deep. He says we need to be rooted, we need to be built up, we need to be established, we need to be abounding in thanksgiving. Our spiritual life is a marathon, not a sprint. And we need to keep running. I was reading an article just today about uh, the world record for the oldest person to ever complete a marathon. Any guesses how old he was? 101. 101. For his 101st birthday, he ran a marathon, right? That's, that's literally insane. I, I am 27 and I can't run a marathon. Like that's just, that's pathetic. That is, how can he do that? It's because he's had a lifelong ambition of running. Let that be a great picture of our spiritual lives. If we live to be 101, we're still running spiritual marathons and we haven't grown complacent. Four things we need to do though to combat complacency. First, he says, we need to be rooted. We need to be rooted. We need to be grounded in the truth. And that's what we've been talking about tonight, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But that's the idea of having a biblical worldview, having an intellectual faith that's sturdy and has a strong foundation. Don't be a Christian tumbleweed. Don't be a Christian tumbleweed. You've probably been out west and seen a tumbleweed before, right? A tumbleweed is a plant that essentially had a very weak connection to its root system. And as it dried up, it snaps off of its roots, and then it's just blown around by the wind and just tumbles wherever it goes. Don't be a Christian tumbleweed who's just blown around by the wind of cultural conformity. Have roots that go deep, 
plant spiritual roots and build your foundation. But second, he says, it's not, just to, not enough just to lay roots down. We need to be built up. We need to be growing in our faith. We need to be growing in our faith. And there's two things that help us do that. One is the, the study and spending time with Christ part that we've already talked about. But a second way that we grow in our faith is by serving. Studying and serving. And that's the part I want to hit on for a minute. Because... American Christians are better at, I mean, we're pretty bad at both, actually. But we're better at studying uh, than serving. If you were to look at most churches, 15, 10% of the people do 85, 90% of the ministry that takes place at a church. Even though every single Christ follower has a gift. The minute you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit indwells you, and you are gifted to do big things for God's kingdom. But a lot of us, a lot of us, I'm afraid sometimes we put up a, a dam in our spiritual lives where we have all this inflow. We have sermons, we have worship, we have mentors, we have accountability, and we have all this inflow. But then there's a dam and we have no outflow. We never serve. We never disciple. We never mentor. We never pour out what's being poured into us. And because of that, a lot of us can get spiritually flabby. I mean, that's just how it is. We take all the stuff in, but then we never put in the energy to do anything, anything with it. God gifted you in a very special way. Nobody else in the world can do what you can do for God's kingdom because he has a specific plan to use you in a special way. But don't let your gifts collect dust and sit in the corner. Grow by putting your gifts into action. But then there's a third thing. We need to be established, which kind of has this idea of we need to be resilient during trials. We need to be resilient. We need to have an established faith that can go through difficult times. You know, Scripture teaches us that seasons of testing are sometimes the moments where we're going to grow most in our spiritual walk. We want a faith that's refined by fire. Now, that's not fun when it happens, but in the end, it produces a faith that's purer than gold. So we need to expect seasons of testing in our lives. You know, there's a really interesting thing. If you were to look at trees that grow in more desert climates, those trees on average have far deeper root systems than trees that live in areas where there's lots of rain and lots of water. Why is that? It's because during the dry seasons, during the desert uh, topography, their roots go deeper and deeper and deeper because the water table goes down further and further. So during the times of desert, uh, during the times of dryness in the desert, their roots deepen even further, making them stronger in the long run. It's kind of true spiritually. Sometimes God puts us in the desert because he wants our roots to go down a little deeper. So I imagine that a lot of us are in a spiritual desert right now. It's just not a fun time of life. There's stress, there's anxiety, there's fear. Don't waste this trial. Now's the time to deepen your roots, not to let them be shallow. We don't want a faith that's an inch deep and a mile wide. Deepen those roots. And then lastly, we need to be overflowing with thanksgiving. He says, always joyful. We need to learn to count our blessings instead of spreading our complaints. A fortified faith has learned to focus on how blessed we are in Jesus. It's a perspective that's not about listing what I don't have, 
but reflecting on all that I've been given. You know, just con- as we close, just consider the story that I'm going to close with. This is from a book uh, by William Lane Craig that I was reading through. And this is a story about his pastor friend uh, that, uh, that had shared the story with him about a time he had volunteered in a nursing home. Here's what the book says. As I neared the end of the hallway, this is William, King, uh, Craig's, William Lake Craig's friend. He says, I saw an old woman who was strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was a nightmare. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over an ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten away by cancer, and there's a discolored sore covering part of one cheek. It pushed her nose up to one side, dropped an eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was now the bottom of her mouth. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old, and she had been bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than anybody I saw in the hallway that day. But I put a flower in her hand, and I said, here's a flower for you, happy Mother's Day. And as Mabel held the flower, she put it up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. And she said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to somebody else? You see, I'm blind and I can't enjoy it. I said, of course. So I pushed her chair down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some other alert patients. I found one and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. Now Tom and Mabel wound up becoming friends over the next few years. And Tom began to realize that he was not actually helping Mabel, but she instead was helping him. He began to take notes every time he'd visit her on what she said. And after a stressful week, Tom went to Mabel and asked her, Mabel, what do you think about as you just lay here all day? And she replied, I think about my Jesus. I sat there for a moment about the difficulty for me to even think about Jesus for five minutes. And I said, well, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote. And here's what she said. I think of how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life. You know, I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would call me old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd, I'd rather have Jesus. He's the world to me. And then Mabel rehearsed her favorite hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Jesus is my friend. Mabel had a fortified faith. She knew that to grow up, she had to grow deep. And she realized that God uses the good and the bad, the pleasant and the excruciating, the hills and the valleys to help her keep her eyes on Jesus. So don't settle for a shallow faith. Don't settle for a substitute gospel that deteriorates during hard times. Don't settle for a counterfeit Jesus who's recast in our fallen and broken image. Pursue the real thing. Pursue Jesus as your greatest friend. Fortify your faith to withstand whatever sin and Satan might throw your way. Surrender everything. Keep choosing Jesus and combat complacency. Let's pray. Father, 
I know this is a sobering text, and those aren't always the most fun to preach. But the reality is that our culture aligns very closely with what Paul was addressing in this chapter of Colossians. There's a lot of counterfeits. There's a lot of distortions. There's a lot of lies. And Father, right now, I feel like many of us are in a desert season when it comes to our spiritual lives. We feel forgotten. We feel abandoned. We feel distressed. But Father, rather than listing our complaints, help us to be like Mabel and instead count our blessings. Help us to know that you are a friend that we can always go to. You never turn us away. You never leave us by ourselves. And you are working things together for our good and for your glory. Father, help us to grow up into maturity by growing deeper. And help us to love Jesus, to look like Jesus, and to continue choosing Jesus every day of our lives. We pray these things in his powerful name. Amen.